Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. According to data from the Nelson Corporation, alcohol sales have increased by over 50% during this pandemic. But even before this, drinking alcohol has been a major public health concern. Excessive alcohol use is responsible for 88,000 deaths annually. In addition, research has linked alcohol consumption to an increased risk of liver disease, cardiovascular disease, and even cancer. In moderation, the occasional drink is fine. But if you're one of those that relies on alcohol as a daily escape, or maybe you just want to cut back so you can lose some weight, this is the show for you. Joining us today is Georgia Foster, the author of Drink Less in Seven Days. Her techniques have an astounding 95% success rate. If you'd like to cut down on your drinking, don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is a clinical hypnotherapist and world-leading therapist. Uh, she specializes in alcohol reduction, emotional overeating, self-esteem, anxiety, and fertility issues. Her unique and highly successful approach has helped tens of thousands of people learn how to feel better emotionally and physically. Her media features include Sky News, GMTV, Psychology's Magazine, The Guardian, and Good Housekeeping, just to name a few. She's the best-selling author of six books, and her latest book is called Drink Less in Seven Days. Welcome all the way from Australia, Georgia Foster. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. Hello and greetings from this side of the globe. It's great to have you on board here. Uh, since it's already tomorrow there, I guess you could say I'm living in the past. So today you're going to have to enlighten me and speed me up to the future. <laughs> uh, and I could give you the lottery tickets, could I? Lottery numbers, that'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> I wish you would. <laughs> so tell us about your, your new book. What inspired you to write Drink Less in Seven Days? Well, I was obviously being an Australian, but I lived in the UK for a very long time and the Brits are big drinkers too. Um, and it just kind of happened organically that people were coming to see me about stress and anxiety. And then they'd say, Georgia, can you help me with my drinking? And I'm like, well, of course I can. And I realized that there was just a massive you know, demographic of people who are hardworking citizens who, we're not talking park bench stories here. We're talking about people who have fully functioning lives. Right. And a lot of the drinking is done in the home, so it goes kind of under the radar. Um, that there were people who genuinely needed my help. And what happened along the way was I wanted to get a, um, a book deal with this particular subject and everybody completely rejected me. So I ended up self-publishing a book called The Drinkless Mind when it was uncool to publish, self-publish. And, um, right. and within four months, I, w I went into reprint because um, I was in the, the Sunday Times newspaper in the UK and Psychology's magazine. And, and I really understood then that there was a massive desire for people who really didn't want to quit and didn't need to quit. Um, so I came, I've been on a journey that's been like 22 years in the making and I haven't lost my passion because I think a lot of people don't want to be sober. It works for many people, but I believe most right. people don't need to quit. Right. Now, so many people find it difficult to have just one drink. Why are alcoholic beverages so addictive? Why do you have to keep having another and then another and then another? Mm. Well, the, the, what a lot of people don't realize is that when we drink, I mean, I'm trained in this fantastic psychology, and the theory is that we're all made up of many parts right. or sub-personalities. And there's one personality trait called the inner critic. And the inner critic is the part that says, 
why did you say that in that meeting today? The mothers at the school gate think this of you. Why are you overweight? Or why do you drink too much? Or why do you not earn more money? Or what's wrong with you? And what we know about alcohol, unlike other substances, I mean, you know, chocolate can do it to a certain extent, but, but the fact is that when we drink alcohol, the critical part of the brain shuts down. So people aren't, they're not getting hooked into the alcohol, they're getting hooked into the feelings that they get from it. Because when we drink and the inner critic goes away, we don't care so much, we think, oh, sod it, you know, um, and we start to relax and enjoy being in the moment. Until, of course, we wake in the morning and the inner critic comes back with a with a massive, you know, um, earpiece saying, you know, why did you drink so much? And, it, yeah. and then the anxiety kicks in again and then the vicious cycle of needing to drink again to run away from this part, um, you know, is what the, the, the cycle occurs. So I'm not saying not drinking, you know, I'm saying that drinking is absolutely fine. When you get your negative thinking in a better space, you won't need to have that frenzied drinking moment because you're in a better place before you drink. Right. And I think a lot of people, they drink too much. They're not tapping into their why. Why are they drinking? And many people drink in, you know, before bed, so it helps them sleep. But studies show it lessens quality of sleep, and some drink to escape stress and to be happier, but alcohol is a depressant. And drinking too much also makes it difficult to make wise decisions. So, you know, it's been linked to disease. So that said, why do people think alcohol is such a great escape when you really tap into your why it's not it doesn't make you healthier it doesn't make you happier well i think there's a, a big misconception as we get older that we can't we don't have fun unless we're drinking you know and and a lot of right. people are socially shy so they'll use alcohol as their communication crutch um, i know many people who will say to me georgia i can't go out unless i've had that little sneaky drink um, and I think anxiety is is pretty rife, you know. And and I know in the U.S., you know, America's a heavy, heavily medicated society, mm-hmm. and we're, we're we are not really allowed to feel our feelings. And we feel guilty about these feelings because not enough people talk about mental health, and it's something that you know people will use alcohol as their way to belong and to connect. And a lot of that's to do with very low self esteem or um, what I call, you know, the, the, the perfectionist you know, type of person who drinks like all or nothing. You know, they will right. abstain for, for a week or they may not drink for a whole month and do sober October, for example. But when they actually drink, they go back to this default position of really caning it and drinking very quickly. And that's another drinking personality trait that often ends up having to quit because they just can't seem to get that middle ground of drinking, you know? They can't work out yeah. why they just can't. You know, they're always in the doghouse with their wife or their husband because when they drink, because it's like, why do you always just do too much when you drink it? You know, it's like, can't you yeah. just get some sort of... And I think that's the problem that people don't understand that, you know, where I come in with the hypnosis is that we, we, we tend to default to what's familiar, even when it's unhelpful. And the mind works on what is or what we've been doing. So when people decide to quit for a period of time and they go back to drinking, the brain will just go back to where they were. Whereas I'm saying is that you can train your brain to move forward rather than use history as your reference of drinking. Right. Good point. What advice would you give someone that's listening, that's stressed out at work? They come home and the first thing they reach for is that bottle of wine. What could they do if, if it's a stressful day and not reach for that as a pacifier? 
Mm. Well, one of the things, it's a really easy top tip, um, is that a lot of people are dehydrated. So if you can imagine the brain, when your body is dehydrated, it is looking for liquid that hydrates. And a lot of people, when they get in from work, especially if you're a big coffee drinker because coffee is a diuretic, yeah. or you know, tea or Coca-Cola, um, mm-hmm. the body is saying, get me that liquid. And a lot of people mistake that for that beer or that wine. And then you're drinking the wine really quickly, but your body's going, this isn't, I need more because this is dehydrating me. So the brain and the body don't understand what's going on. So my suggestion is to have a massive glass of water before your first drink. So at least your brain isn't demanding the alcohol, confusing it with hydrating. Um, But the other thing that's really important is, you know, instead of going for that first drink, sit down and write down and have a conversation with yourself what is going on in your head that makes you think that the alcohol is going to make you feel better. Is it that you're bored? Is it Because a lot of people have really busy lives and then they get in from work and they're just bored. <laughs> and so they, they're not drinking because they've got some serious emotional right. issue. They're just like, True. oh, you know, whether they live on their own or, or, you know, the kids go to bed and think, oh, what am I going to do? I'm just sick of the TV. And do they just have a drink because they think that it, it makes them more funny or more interesting or... I mean, a lot of people say to me, you know, Georgia, I write an amazing idea for a book after a few drinks, but then the next day I think that was a terrible idea. So what I'm saying, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that it probably was a really good idea at the time. But once again, right. you know, um, if you're using alcohol to be somebody who you think you can't be sober, I mean, I've got an online program called Seven Days to Drink Less, which is a kind of a bigger version of the book. And, you know, in it I say, you know, what's incredible is that who you are before you drink is the person, the real person you want to work with so that you don't need to drink to become that person. And I think that's the thing is, you know, get in from work, stressed, bored, tired, um, lonely. You know, all of those reasons why we drink, I'm not not saying don't drink because I, I love my Chardonnay, but I'm saying... We just need to think about why we drink and then start to work with the emotional conditioning because when you do that, you realize that that there's no point to drink in a way that's going to just keep the vicious cycle going because, I mean, that's really key here, underpinning that the more you drink in unhealthy ways, then it can become problem drinking. Yeah, I know when I help people stop binge eating, the first advice I give them is not to eat while watching TV, working at the computer, or Mm. surfing online. This takes their concentration away from eating, and they end up, you know, overstuffing themselves if they're not concentrating on what they're... Is this the same advice you give people when it comes to alcohol? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So many people say to me, I can't believe I'm at the kitchen bench and I'm chopping the vegetables, I'm cooking dinner for the kids, and I think, where has that half bottle of wine gone? Where have I been? <laughs> where have I been in all of this, you know? <laughs> and that's a really uh-huh. good example of unconscious automatic drinking. So I say to people, instead of having that glass of wine when you're cooking, wait until you're having a beautiful meal. Wait until you can actually yeah. consciously recognize it. You know, I know so many, you know, mums at home who are saying, I'm putting the kids in the bath, um, I'm cooking the dinner, I'm doing all the chores, and I'm just walking with a glass of wine the whole time. So, but, but what's the point in doing that? Because it's not giving you anything. There's no pleasure in that. That's just a, 
I need it is kind of like my emotional crutch. But ultimately, right. it's incredible how quickly you can break the state and how quickly you can make those changes. And even after a couple of evenings of walking around with a glass of water or a cup of herbal tea or something, it's incredible how much your mind will get used to it. But as you said, it's about breaking that state and breaking that automated habit. Yeah. How, how do people know if they need to cut back in drinking? Is there, is there how much is too much? Those listening that says, well, I just have one or two a night. I don't need to even be listening. Is it true? Do we talking to people that drink beyond that? Well, what's interesting that the, the government and the medical association decided to get together to explain to people, drinkers, that um, they need to drink less. So I think people thought, a bit like calorie counting and fat grams, they thought like on the, right. on the, on the, on the side of cornflake packets that we would listen. <laughs> um, I was um, invited to speak at one of the big Tesco's, one of the big supermarket chains in, in, in the UK, and they're saying, you know, we're educating our people here how to cut back on sugar and fat grams and salt, etc. But people aren't listening. But people forget that it's an emotional decision. And as soon as you tell somebody, don't do that, <laughs> they tend to rebel. Yeah, they... um, And the same thing True. is with drinking. So even though the policies that came in from the government and the medical association were done with the best intention, um, what they discovered was that people on balance lie by at least three times. So when you go and your doctor says, how many glasses do you drink a night of whatever? People lie by three times. So they decided that if that was the case, that they would reduce it by three and a little bit more. So when people say, um, I, I, look, I'm not pro-increasing people to drink, of course, but if you're drinking one glass of alcohol an hour and you're actually hydrating yourself with water and you're eating some food to try and help the liver process the alcohol, you will be okay. I'm not saying you drink a glass an hour for seven hours, of course, but what I'm saying is right. there's a bit of scaremongering that goes on um, that we need to be mindful of because you, know, you mentioned before about the liver, which is so important. I mean, I think what's right. going to happen in the future is there's going to be a massive burst of health awareness about the liver because the liver does go unnoticed when it should be really looked at more than it is. And you know, the thing about the liver, if you have a very poor diet, you'll have a fatty liver. If you drink too much alcohol, you'll have a fatty liver. So it's just about getting that really lovely balance, you know, that... You know, I have a saying, if you can pick it or spare it, you can eat it. You know, we need to also right. be nurturing ourselves with real food. Um, it was actually, I was, interest, I was interviewed the other day for a, um, on a, a divorce uh, um, podcast, and we were talking about, you know, women drinking on their own and things like that. And I was just saying that, you know, what we really need to understand is that that we are making alcohol a taboo subject. So a lot of people feel really embarrassed about their drinking and that is what can cause more drinking issues as well so I'm really I'm an advocate saying you know what we need to stop the shame and the guilt because that ironically can make people do the sneaky drinking and and if you've got yeah. like the alcohol police in your house if you've got a husband or wife who monitors your drinking it can really irritate somebody a lot um, and and ironically can make them drink more Right. So tell us about the program that you offer. Do you have like a video hypnotherapy session that people partake in online or is it live? What does it consist of? Yeah, the seven days to drink less program is fully, um, it's a private program. So you don't have to go into group meetings or, you know, and I'm very much along the lines right. of 
neuroplasticity, like, you know, very much the forward thinking in terms of hypnosis and the psychology. And so over the seven days, I explain what I would do if I saw a client over four weeks. And in those seven days, you get basically fast-tracked to a, a program where there's the psychology and the neuroplasticity and some really good tools that I work with people who are in um, performance achievement to kind of get that person into a space where they, through the hypnosis recordings each day, to train their mind to stop the emotional conditioning, the drinking that causes the grief. Because I'm saying, you know, if you ended up winning the lottery tonight or it was your best friend's birthday and she said, look, champagne on me, I'm not saying don't, you know, have a bit like a piece of cake on your birthday, have an extra piece, you know. Right. You know, I just think it's the regular drinking that's haunting people. It's the regular drinking that's making people feel shamed and embarrassed. And I want people to know that there's no reason to feel embarrassed because, as you said, the person who eats too much isn't shamed like this. The person who smokes too much isn't shamed like this. The person who's, um, you know, got high anxiety and has to take medication isn't, you know, we really need to honor that, that society makes us feel bad about the drinking. Yeah. Talk to us about family history. I know we had Dr. Drew Pinsky on the show and he shared something interesting. He said, if a parent was an alcoholic, you have a 10 times increased risk of becoming one yourself. What have you found when it comes to your program? Do those with a family history of overindulging have a harder time breaking the habit or can you still have success? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it, it, it can go either way. Some people, because of the experience that the alcohol is affected on the family, just never go, want to go anywhere near it. Um, and right. those people tend to be quite judgmental of people who do drink because it triggers a lot of stuff from their past. And then there's the other school of thought, um, which I'm very much a firm believer in, is that we we don't genetically inherit the gene, we emotionally can inherit it. And it doesn't mean we become an alcoholic, but it means that when we observe, it's a bit, a great example is as a, a, you know, um, a client, when I had a, a clinic in London many years ago, and it was just incredible how many people would come with a fear of spiders or flying, and I'll say, but right. have you ever had a bad, have you ever actually met a spider? And in the middle of London, that's <laughs> usually not that very possible. And, and, I, and they say, no. I say, well, where did you get it from? Oh, my mum's got it. Oh, my dad's got it. I watched yeah. a scary movie one day. And so what we do is we tend to mimic behaviors from our parents, a bit like we we can mimic depression and anxiety. Um, a bit like a mother who, and I'm not being critical about family systems here, but sometimes a mother who doesn't mean to, but the daughter picks up on the, the consistent dieting. Um, we tend to mimic our parents' anxieties and we tend to think it's normal because we see it so often. It becomes so familiar that the brain not only thinks it's normal, it wants to belong to belong to their parents. So we learn some unhealthy behaviors and some of them can be drinking. Yeah, that's just like food. A lot of people think that, oh, my parents were overweight. I inherited the DNA. No, you inherited the habits. You watched your your parents cook bacon fat and junk and then you 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 carried that over. It's not, there's, uh, we can't blame our genes on why we can't fit into our genes. <laughs> That's been proven. So <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so you make, so you make sense. Talk to us about who drinks the most. I'm curious from your experience, is it males or females? And is one of them have a harder time breaking the habit? Um, well, I don't, I think, um, traditionally the women tend to be more putting their hands up and admitting that there's an issue. 
Men tend to be a little right. bit more. And, and what I find often a man will come to me and say, look, it's really starting to affect my life and my family and things like that, or maybe they're being criticized by their wife. Whereas the, the woman tends to be a self-starter and, and, and put her hand up. But I think what I do find traditionally is that, um, and this is, this is not set in stone, of course, but men tend to be more the perfectionist drinker, the all or nothing. Um, and women tend to be more a regular drinker because there's another drinking personality trait that men and women both can have, and I call it the pleaser. They're the nurturer type, the, right. the part that always makes sure there's lots of food on the table and they want to be loved and liked, and they'll often drink too much to please other people, not because they actually want to drink themselves. But pleasers are sober, very poor communicators, so they tend to attract bullies and people who quite judgmental in, in, in life. So a lot of pleasers can resonate with drinking too much because it's kind of their time for themselves. It's like, I've done my bit for everybody else. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to crack open that bottle of wine and I'm just going to forget about everybody. Um, so, I mean, there are you know, different, as I said, you, you, can, you, know, you can be a perfectionist drinker and be a pleaser personality and vice versa. But what we need to understand is male or female um, if you are worried about your drinking and you feel that you don't want to quit or you feel that you want to cut back a little bit or and as you said at the beginning um, of us meeting today is that a lot of people realize you just put weight on it's just you know it's it's not great for the belly is it you know booze belly so you know we know that the you know and what's interesting about alcohol a lot of people don't realize is that drinking, when you drink alcohol, you stop the natural processing of fats um, so because the liver gets involved. And, and it, it, if you're planning to lose weight, drinking alcohol does not support losing weight. So if you do, yeah. if you do want to like, lose weight, you really need to think about having some alcohol-free days in there. Yeah, because, really uh, you know, and, and you make a good point, because when people drink, the, 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 it increases their appetite. They want to nosh, they want to snack, and scientists believe this is because it actually activates certain neurons mm. located in the hypothalamus, which increases appetite and slows metabolism. So, you know, if that's not one of the, uh, you know, maybe a little drop a little hint while you're hypnotizing, says, oh, you know, if you want to lose weight too, maybe that's a motivation as well, not just the liver, because they look in the mirror, you can't see the liver, but you can say, look what this alcohol has done to me. I've gained all this weight. Yeah, and and I think that that's the thing. People will say to me, Georgia, I don't really eat too much. It's just, it's the drinking. And they could be the yeah. healthiest eater, but that's where they're getting their extra calories from. And I know a lot of people will say to me, you know, I had um, part of an article one day and it was called Winorexia. And a lot of people are saving their calories. They're exercising crazy. They're eating minimal amounts and saving their calories for their wine. And that's just so bad for your liver. You know, you really need to, to you know, and then obviously that's somebody who needs to look at their drinking issues is, you know, why do you need to drink the way that you do? I mean, I, I mean the seven-day program it's really about understanding that whatever the conditioned response is, whether it's stress, boredom, anxiety, financial issues, you know, whatever it is, uh, low self-esteem, it isn't the truth. It's just something your mind has trained itself to do. So you can retrain it in another way. And, and you know, part of the program is, is, is becoming more intuitive in your everyday life, not letting things get to you so much not taking things so personally, 
so that you don't need to drink to kind of deal with what's going on. Uh, and obviously at the moment, the way the world is at the moment, um, people are feeling very disconnected. So, you know, we do know alcohol, you said 33%, the increase in Australia, it's gone up 76%. And, you know, wow. this is, this is, these are real stats coming out and people are drinking because they don't have to get in the car the next day. You know, they don't have to drive here or whatever. Um, people, yeah. their lifestyles have changed dramatically. And I think people just think, well, why not? And I think, you know, I have a saying at the moment, I think the quarantini party's over. You know, we need to at some stage right. honour that we, we, we've, we've had a very challenging time globally. We need to honour that. But at some stage we need to say, look, you know, enough is enough. You know, I want to drink, but I want to drink in a better way. Right. What about trades? I'm curious, is there any particular jobs that you've seen tend to cause overindulgence? I would imagine it would be like the high-strung executives or CEOs would be up there on the list. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the drinking we're talking about are, are people who can afford lovely wines, um, beautiful restaurant meals. Um, you know, the, the demographic of the, the people we're talking about are 45 plus who have got into a particular level of their career Um, and and a lot of I think what's interesting a lot of people think when you go to college and it's it's cool to be drunk and stuff like that and you think oh well I'll deal with this when I'm older but we know statistically that the 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 longer you drink in a particular way it doesn't become a stronger habit it just becomes familiar and I think when you get to your 30s you think well I should really be a bit more responsible and I should really get that better job and I should do this and I should do that and you kind of think that you're going to cut back on your drinking but a lot of people don't realize that the habit goes with them so when they get to 40 and things start to change whether it's hormonally for women um, you know professionally I think as well people think you know what I need to be a little bit more responsible and think about my retirement plan or whatever it is and think I think I've got a bit of a drink issue and that's the perfect time to be looking at it because you know the mind is malleable it can change and it can adapt to new conditions but you need to train it, and that's obviously what the seven-day program is about. But then once again, um, the building industry, you know, uh, of big drinkers. Um, I had a guy who was head of one of the unions. Um, He came to a seminar to sit in on what I was doing, and he was saying, "We we need you to come in and talk to our workforce because, you know, they have this saying on one of the, the uh, oil rigs in Australia, on, in Western Australia, that it's nine before nine. And what they've studied is you can have nine beers before nine o'clock and still get up in the morning and not have any alcohol on your breath as to be breathalyzed before they go back on the rigs. Mm-hmm. Now, nine beers before nine, if you're finishing work at five, that's a lot of beers yeah. to be drinking. Um, and so there are, there are populations of, of, of industries where you know, drinking quickly, drinking without eating is all very socially acceptable. Wow. Yeah. Let me ask you, from your experience, is there a certain type of alcohol that's a little bit more difficult to break? For example, someone that drinks too much whiskey compared to maybe a wine or beer drinker, is one easier to break or is all alcoholic beverages created equal when it comes to the addiction? It depends on the emotional conditioning. I know a lot of people who can sit on a glass of wine all night, but as soon as they have a vodka, they're in a different space, you know. Right. So I always say, you know, you need to be mindful of, of which alcohol which alcohol can trigger what. And you've got to remember as well, spirits are higher in density of alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, 40% proof versus wine, which would be... But it's interesting, I was talking to um, somebody the other day, and um, 
they were talking about there was an increase in breast cancer in is it um, Marin in um, in California, um, but a wine area in California. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to an expert about it, and they were saying it's not actually the wine that's the problem; it's the amount of chemicals that yeah. are put in winemaking. Yes. Um, and when you drink like European wines, like Italian or French, um, in Australia we're not allowed to. Um, I mean, I only, I only drink organic wine myself, but we need to be mindful that we need to look at what's not on the label and just start to be a little bit more um, sure of what we are consuming because a lot of this we are consuming is just so processed and actually the good bits of it aren't there anymore because it's just full of chemicals. So true. Yeah, they found 100% of all the wines tested in California had high levels of glyphosate, which is a uh, Monsanto chemical, and it's killing the people's guts and 100%, not not 90. It was really, they found 100% in California wines. So you're right. You really have got to be careful. And that's not on the label. You don't look and go, oh, this has glyphosate. I'm not going to drink it. It's hidden. <laughs> it's not divulged. And the same with mm. sugar. There's so much sugar in wine. And, and in the U.S., there's no label telling how much sugar. Literally, you, you don't know by looking at alcohol what's in there. Is it the same with Australia or do they keep the, the sugar kind of hidden? Yeah, we, we have a policy. We don't add any sugar to our wine, but I know that for the U.S. market, when we ship our, our wine to, to America, we have, we're, we're requested to add sugar, which is interesting. And also, when I was in um, France, went to the, um, I don't know, I usually say Moe, but Moet, um, the, the French champagne makers, uh-huh. and there was a, an American couple there saying that's all they drank when it came to champagne. And the, the, um, the wine tasting guy said, you do realize the, the champagne you're drinking now is the real champagne, the champagne you get has got crazy amounts of sugar in it. So we can't, we call it champagne, but by the time it gets to you, it's not real champagne. Wow. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's a crazy story, you know? Yeah, what's, um, what's crazy, I don't know if people got, but you said when you ship it to uh, America from, from there, you add sugar. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we're just, uh, and we don't know it, but just, you know, it's hidden in there. You know, it's with food, we're required to know how much sugar, but people drinking alcohol and it just hides in there as well. In the minute we have mm-hmm. left, is there anything else you'd like to share about your seven days to drink less program or something we didn't cover? Um, no, uh, nothing apart from the fact, obviously, any questions, please contact me on my website, which is georgiafoster.com. Um, and, you know, I'm genuinely here to help you because I want, people to stop feeling guilty about their drinking so they can start to do something positive about it and enjoy what they're drinking rather than feel bad about it. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for sharing this great information on a serious issue, especially now, you know, people are just increasing their drinking. So this couldn't have been more perfect timing. To learn more about Georgia's seven days to drink less hypnotherapy program or to get her book, go to georgiafoster.com. And you can follow her on Facebook at seven days to drink less. And to follow me on Facebook or Twitter, I'm at Dr. David Friedman on Instagram, Dr. D Friedman. If uh, you heard Georgia share something today that you said, man, I wish somebody I know could hear that, send them a link to this podcast. It's available to yourgoodhealthradio.com or radiomd.com and peruse our podcast library and share these segments with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. This information is too important to keep to yourself. Sharing is caring. You can also subscribe to future podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.